from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Rhea Harmson on July 27, 2020. Rhea is a poet, a novelist, and an agronomist. Her two works of poetry are Language of the Spirit and a spoken word CD entitled Isaiah's Longing. She reads a selection from Language of the Spirit, and we play the title spoken word piece Isaiah's Longing. Rhea's two novels are The Harvest of Reason and God Created Women. She reads excerpts from both. I started the interview by asking Rhea where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Brazil. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but at the age of one, my parents, who were Baha'is, decided to move to Brazil to help the Baha'i community there to grow. Baha'is often do this, and they're called pioneers. It's not a paid position or anything. They just move to another country and live a normal life, try to earn a living. They try to help the community grow. And this is how the Baha'i faith has spread all over the world. So my life was very exciting growing up. I lived in a city called Curitiba, Brazil, in the southern part of Brazil. At that point, it was a city of maybe a million and a half people when I left at the age of 15. Now it's about 4 million people and it's an amazing city. It's actually a model city. Religious life, I went to children's classes, like virtues classes, and accompanied my parents on different activities. But it was basically being the child of an interracial couple. So my mother was white and my dad was black. If they had not been Baha'is, perhaps they wouldn't have met or married, but they married in 1954, which in the United States, there were still many states where it was illegal to do this. They were definitely pioneers in in all senses. And you said you left Brazil when you were 15? Yes. And then we came back to Chicago, and that's where I finished high school. You are a scientist, an author, and a poet, and we're going to go through all of your works as we go through the interview. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us what your field of science is. My field is plant genetics, plant breeding, and agronomy. I started with a bachelor's in agronomy. All of this has to do with the science of growing crops. Was poetry and writing always a part of your life growing up, even as you were studying science and practicing science? Yeah, I think that all three of those things were big in my family. My mother, Jane Reynolds Howard, was an educator, and my dad, Ed Howard, was a builder. And they were both highly, highly intelligent people and very well-read So I remember my mom reading to us as a kid the biography of George Washington Carver, 
of Tuskegee University. He was like the most prominent black scientist in the early 20th century. He worked in agriculture. I remember being fascinated by the stories and the fact that he had invented more than 300 uses for peanuts because he was trying to develop a crop that could replace cotton for black farmers. And I think that this was very inspirational in my life in terms of what I eventually ended up studying. So poetry and writing, yes, that was definitely big in our family. And uh, I can still remember my father, you know, he had this book called 100 Famous Poems or something like that. I still have it. It's so dog-eared and <laughs> and used that I keep it in a, a Ziploc bag, you know, to preserve it. But he used to quote a poem of Longfellow's called A Psalm of Life. Like, instead of saying to a 12-year-old, you got to watch out for peer pressure, he would say, in this dreary field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb driven cattle, be a hero in the strife. <laughs> Every single one of us, we're seven kids, we can all remember this, you know. Right. And my mom uh, actually wrote poetry and had pieces published in a college newspaper where she worked. And I remember her writing also many small articles for the local newspaper about aspects of the Baha'i faith. My dad was also an aspiring book writer. So there you go. Writing <laughs> was big. So was poetry. I'm speaking with Rhea Harbson, a scientist, a poet, and an author. Rhea, you have at least two collections of poetry that I'm aware of. One is called Language of the Spirit, and the other is Isaiah's Longing. Can you tell me about the language of the spirit, and why did you choose that title for the collection of poems? Language of the Spirit is a small collection of early poems about how I was experiencing the world in all its magnificence and all its injustice. This was in graduate school. I didn't start writing till, till I was in graduate school. Well, that's not true. I, I wrote for my school newspaper in high school, but I'm talking about poetry right now in, in particular. So writing poetry really allowed me to start learning about myself, finding a language in which to express my innermost thoughts that's really what I think poetry is, a language of the spirit. It's a language that we all possess as children, you know. I have a seven-year-old granddaughter. Children marvel at things. They see the world through magical eyes. Later, that language might get snuffed out, but we should always strive to speak it, you know, to hear it. Because it's a language that allows us to connect the invisible realm with this realm in which we live through feelings, through images, and utterance. I'm reminded that the Bob, the prophet herald of the Baha'i faith, mentioned a well-known Islamic tradition once. He says, treasures lie hidden beneath the throne of God. The key to those treasures is the tongue of poets. 
and he was alluding to the fact that there can even be sort of a prophetic dimension to some poetry, you know, in terms of anticipating the future. Yeah, it's a very important aspect of our life as human beings. Rhea, would you like to read a poem from Language of the Spirit? Okay. I think I would like to share with you a poem called Who Are My People? It's also called The Biracial Child's Credo. It was almost the first poem that I wrote, and it speaks to the struggle I had when I came back to the United States at the age of 15 after growing up in Brazil and was asked to define my race. You know, on all those forms you fill out, you have to say what you are. As a biracial person, I always rebelled against that. This is, who are my people? The biracial child's credo. I was spawned of a dream, yet of water and clay, of a mixture of races way ahead of my day. Then was raised in a nation far away from my own, and it's made my soul restless, for my people are unknown. In a world that has classes for every person you see, the ethnicity of my blood is a mystery to me. When I hear the man sing the travail of his people, or the writer recount all the pain and the glory of her people oppressed in the lines of a story, I feel in my soul that this too is my goal, to tell of the suffering, to tell of the longing, point the way of the drum, the masses are thronging. For I hear unmistakably in this storm of oppression, the cries of my people from every direction, South Africa, Haiti, Panama, Nicaragua, Palestine, Ethiopia, Philippine and Korea, Germany, Poland, the Great Wall of China, Colombia, Cambodia, no man is an island. The abused, the possessed, the poor, the oppressed, who is a kindred spirit? Where do I draw the line? Does the Ethiopian child feel its hunger like mine? Would I take the grimy babe and give it suck from my breast? If mankind counts as one, does this child count as less? Asking, who are my people? I confess, I'm confused. In the din of the 90s, ethnic barriers have fused. In the cry to be freed, in the wail to be fed, in the ache to be led to the promised reprieve, all the people are one. I'm speaking with Rhea Harmson, a scientist, author, and poet, and we were talking about her first collection of poems called Language of the Spirit, and she just read a poem entitled Who Are My People? The Biracial Child Credo. So you have another collection of poetry called Isaiah's Longing. Now, why did you choose this title for the collection of these poems? 
Well, Isaiah's Longing is a CD of spoken word poems in a musical soundscape. So it draws on some of the poems from Language of the Spirit and some new ones. The composer of the music is my friend Lee Robinson, a very wonderful musician from the Pittsburgh area. As far as the title goes, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament had a vision of something that would happen in the future. He said, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. So I believe that this has happened already, that we are living in those times foreseen by Isaiah. The Universal House of Justice, which is the governing body of the Baha'i Faith, is established on Mount Carmel in Haifa, Israel. Every five years, delegates from around 200 countries of the world, all in their native garb, come to elect this body. It's a world election. Pilgrims also from all over the world flow there for their pilgrimage to the mountain of the Lord. So Isaiah's longing is, well, about the fulfillment of this desire. Well, it was a prophecy. It was something he saw, but I also consider that it was something he longed for. So I asked you to select one of the spoken word poems on the CD. So we're going to play one. So which one are we playing? And tell us about it. Okay, well, we're going to be listening to the title cut from the CD, and it's called Isaiah's Longing. I should forewarn folks if they ever do get the CD or they go looking for it. There are two versions of this. One is a hip-hop version, and the other one is the version you're going to hear now. So this is the title spoken word piece, Isaiah's Longing. Climbing up a mountain, they are coming. All the nations coming. Up white steps of marble, beat of drumming, water humming, spilling fountains. They are climbing, eyes a-shining, sun glistening on ebony, tears streaming from blue iris, jet hair flowing, breeze a-blowing, old and young arm leaning, all the colors of the rainbow, they are all so slowly streaming up the mountain of the Lord. And the mountain stands awaiting, arms flung out embracing, Noah's Ark receiving the children of the world. The gentle people flowing past the silent lush greening, in the flowers peace is dreaming round the golden dome gleaming house of the Lord. The gravel pans are crunching, feet are kissing, ground they're touching, hushed emotion brimming. They come with faces glowing, against all odds here reaching, out of oppression rising, up from death to resurrection, from four corners of the earth, golden age of man and birth. From the midmost heart of forest, from the ocean floor arising, 
coming home to desert blooming to fulfill Isaiah's longing. Troops, masses, all now thronging up the mountain of the Lord. I'm speaking with Rhea Harmson, a scientist, author, and poet, and we've been talking about her poetry, and we specifically have been talking about her second collection of poems. Actually, it is a CD called Isaiah's Longing, which has the spoken word with the background of music. So why don't we get into your fiction writing? What inspired you to start writing fiction? Here I have another like episode from my childhood that I think was very instrumental in this direction that I t- took. In Brazil, at night, everybody in the family sits in the living room and watches Brazilian novela. Novela is like soap opera. But in Brazil, just like in all of Central and South America and the Caribbean and Africa and Asia. I'm not sure about Europe. I think parts of Europe, too. These soap operas are actually primetime programming. And they're very big part of community life. I grew up seeing the reach that fiction has in people's lives and the potential that it has for educating the masses because these were a combination of like love stories of course and then upstairs downstairs dynamics you know the maids and the owners of the house it was also a place where you learned about things like domestic violence and issues of social culture So to me, popular culture I saw had a very big potential for getting through to large masses of people. The other thing that I think is very interesting to know about ourselves is something that an author named Juval Noah Harari talks about in his best-selling book, Sapiens. He tells us that humans experience a genetic mutation and cognitive revolution of imagination about 70,000 years ago, that this became the dominant force on the planet, allowing Homo sapiens to outcompete six other human-like species that existed at the time. They weren't the biggest or the strongest, but because they had this ability to now believe in myth or in stories, they could unite in groups larger than 50. They started being able to have like 150 in a group, and this increased their ability and their power to hunt and to survive. So they ended up spreading all over the earth. This is, in a very real sense, what we as a human race can imagine we can achieve. If we can develop a collective vision, we can evolve to that vision. I think that if we as Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, is the 
divine physician sent to us with the remedies for the problems of the world at this time, then as a writer, you know, my mission is to transmit these solutions to the world. And it has to be done through popular culture because, like I said, that's what has the potential to reach the masses. We're consumed with entertainment, with storytelling, with imagining the future. So we're consumers of massive amounts of stories. It's the way we learn about ourselves, our moral values, our possibilities for greatness or for, you know, smallness. Another thing that, that impelled me to write fiction is that Shoghi Effendi, the guardian of the Baha'i Faith, the leader of the Baha'i Faith from the 20s, said that we could use our stories to show the evils that exist in the world and to present the Baha'i solutions. He said that this cause would spread like wildfire when its teachings were presented in art and literature as a whole. So the genre I write is, I think, called the social novel. It's the kind of novel that tackles social problems like racism, inequality, as the backdrop. And then my brand is the multiracial or multicultural love stories. I use them for the story arc. And the backdrop is the issues that I'm interested in presenting. So I'm speaking with Rhea Harmson, a scientist, author, and poet, and I was asking her what inspired her to be writing fiction and novels. Your first novel is called The Harvest of Reason. What inspired you to write this novel, and what is this story about? Well, in 1997, I published a paper in World Order magazine called Science in the Hands of Women, present barriers and future promise. And this paper was based on a thesis of Abdul Baha. He's the son of the founder of the Baha'i Faith. His thesis was that women should especially devote her energies to the and abilities towards the industrial and agricultural sciences, seeking to assist mankind in that which is most needful. Then he goes on to say that women have certain unique qualities that should be brought to bear on those sciences and the solutions to the problems that we have in the world, whether they're environmental problems or food production problems, the many, many social injustice problems that we have. And he names these qualities. He says women are especially good in trying to devise practical solutions to that which is most needful. Their empathy is one of their strong points, their moral courage. Their intuition, he says, is more acute. And so I wrote this long paper looking for women who entered a previously male-dominated science and started to transform that science. And we have a lot of wonderful examples. I won't get into it because it's, it turned out to be a very long paper, like 77 pages, oh, very wow. academic. World Order magazine published it. It was like the only paper in that issue because it was so long. They usually have three or four articles. At the end, I'm saying, you know, okay, look at the women. They have all these qualities that they could bring to the table 
But there are so many barriers, and we go into all the barriers with data from the National Science Foundation and many, you know, there's a whole movement of feminism and science, and we reviewed all of that. And at the end, I'm saying, but the culture of science has to change. Otherwise, there's no room for women to have an impact. You know, but then I realized that an academic paper is not enough to create change. Fiction is a better way. So I set out to write this book, which was kind of an exorcism of my graduate school experience. And it's called The Harvest of Reason. It's about two PhD students, Maddie Hawkins, an African-American, and John Pitts, a white PhD student. Their story gave me the chance to explore the issue of institutional racism and sexism in a university setting. The importance of women in science, and this case was agriculture and plant genetics. I had to use what I knew, <laughs> you know. So, Also, I wanted to write books for young Baha'is that would illustrate the real challenges of Baha'i courtship you know, the investigation of another person's character, pioneering interracial relationships, the consent of the parents, chastity issues. None of these things are easy, and they call for great strength of character on the part of young Baha'is who are involved in relationships with non-Baha'is, you know. I mean, how do you explain to someone that you're hot for, that you can't sleep with them before marriage right. in 2020? Very contrary to popular culture. Yeah. So would you like to read an excerpt from The Harvest of Reason? Sure. This one I chose a passage that has to do with Maddie's struggle to find her voice as a female scientist in a male-dominated field. Maddie ran up the front steps of the building and went immediately to the office to see if the mail had already been delivered thinking and trying not to think at the same time, only praying. When she saw the brown envelope, she held her breath and put down her backpack. Maddie slid open the fragile envelope, pulling out four pages. She glanced over the Dear Miss Hawkins, esteemed Dr. Gates, her shaky hands turning the page almost without reading it. Her eyes were looking for numbers, for data, which her scientist brain could take in. On the third page, she found the neat table, listing the yield results and disease ratings for all of the lines she had sent over. The results mimicked those in the United States. Maddie hardly breathed as she scanned the last set of numbers. It showed that a multi-line with all four genes had the highest yield of all. Her eyes went up and down the column, double-checking. Yep. She was so euphoric going up the stairs that she almost didn't hear John's voice calling her from behind. She turned on the landing and waiting for him to catch up. What's up? You look... It came. She waved the papers in the air. The results from Malawi. And, he squinted, you've got tears in your eyes. I can't tell whether the news is good or bad. John, this is exactly what I had postulated. This confirms it. Let me see. He looked over her shoulders at the numbers. Holy tamales, Maddie. Maddie, this is great. He looked up. What are you going to do with it? He asked. 
Her jaw was set with determination as she stated flatly, I'm going to put it in my thesis, and I'm going to write it like I think it should be written, and I'm going to get everything I want. She walked off up the stairs, leaving him there as if she'd forgotten his existence in her single-minded determination to slay all the dragons that stood in her path. John looked up from the landing and shook his head. A determined woman is a humbling thing to behold. Maddie gave Dr. Gates a few minutes to digest the results and then started what she knew would be an uphill climb. Dr. Gates, I just stopped by to let you see these before I go on to write up the results. You know, you weren't quite sure whether I should have the ecology of multi-line section in my literature review, but this is the reason I anticipated these results. Well, Maddie, I agree. You should put them in. An appendix table would be best. Dr. Gates, Maddie pleaded, we have to recognize what we have here. This is a breakthrough. It should change the way we do business. It's not just some little bit of irrelevant data. It means something. I'll stake my reputation as a scientist that it means something. Stake her reputation as a what? Could she call herself that yet? Maddie felt she was watching herself from outside her own body. Well, perhaps, Maddie, but it doesn't fit the mold and it really doesn't change much. You know what, Dr. Gates? You're right. It doesn't change much. Not as a piece of data. That's why we have to turn it into a reality, a concrete thing. What do you mean? I mean, I mean that I think, why was the word I sounding so loud in her ears? that we should create, test, and have the goal of releasing a multi-line here in the United States. Oh, now wait, Maddie. Dr. Gates, if we don't do this, we'll be passing up the opportunity to create a turning point in bean production. Dr. Gates, we have to be more concerned with the environment and the long-term sustainability of the lines we release. Now, Maddie, don't start that. It's true, Dr. Gates, with all due respect, sir, perhaps your generation of breeders didn't, but mine does. We can't go on doing things the way we always have. There has to be some room for change. Well, there is, Maddie, but just not as fast as you want it. Why not? She was on a roll now, and she <laughs> knew she had his attention. Perhaps he was remembering some old thrill of invention. We'll name the new line Balance, she went on, picking the word out of the air. Balance? What kind of a name is that for a bean cultivar? It's a great name. It honors the balance of nature between plants and the ecosystem in which they grow. It's, it's ecological. Get it? Ecological? She laughed at her own joke. Anyhow, it's much better than all those military and naval names that have been used to death. They don't reflect my philosophy of plant breeding. You have a philosophy of plant breeding? Yes, sir. I think I do. I actually think I do. She crossed her arms and slouched back in the chair. Maddie did not leave his office until she had won the battle. That was, in fact, her strategy, to sit in his office until he agreed. She looked upon those two hours as intense negotiations, all she had to do was stay the course and not budge. 
the squeaky wheel gets the oil, she told herself. In the end, she prevailed, with Dr. Gates agreeing to conduct the next rounds of testing in the form of a multiline until it was eventually released. Maddie had been in such a hurry to show her results to Dr. Gates, she hadn't noticed there was a postscript to the letter. Later, when her eyes focused upon the few lines at the very bottom of the page, she read, P.S. In addition to the official trials, we asked a few farmers to grow out these seeds. One of them was a lady who remembered you, Mama Songo, from Niasa Village. Do you remember her? She asked me to send to you her regards, and she says these beans are very good. She got out four bushels of beans instead of two this growing season. Maddie just sat there, feeling like she was being showered by a warm, gentle rain. She discovered it was her own tears that were sliding down her cheeks and falling on her hands. There were no words to describe her gratitude to the higher power that had allowed her the sweetest of all confirmations. She knew that many times in life, seeds were sown for which one never saw the harvest. At that moment, she felt this glimpse was sufficient to last an entire lifetime. Yes, to last her entire career as a breeder. So we're just listening to Rhea Harmson, a scientist, author, and poet, read from her novel, The Harvest of Reason. Now, Rhea, you have a second novel, which is called Intermary. So what inspired you to write this novel, and what is this story about? Well, Intermary is another interracial romance story, but it's much more about the personal aspects of race unity and the most challenging issue. The most challenging issue is a catchphrase the Baha'is use to refer to racism in the American context, especially. So in the most challenging issue doctrine, it talks about racism being like a cancer that has infected the body politic, the whole of the American nation. And we're all kind of sick with it and may not know it. And for whites, apparently, it's the sickness is this often unconscious, subconscious sense of superiority, which people have to struggle against and really work to overcome. And for blacks, it's this sense of mistrust that blacks have from having experienced such grievous and slow healing wounds. And it's also something that's very hard to let go of. Abdu'l-Bahá talks about one of the strategies for achieving race unity. And he says, If it be possible, gather together these two races, black and white, into one assembly and put such love into their hearts that they shall not only unite, but even intermarry. And so that's where the title of the book comes from, Intermarry. 
Now, what year was that? That was uh, that. That was in 1912, mm-hmm. way in the beginning of the 20th century, when he visited America after being released from prison, because he spent his whole life up to age 67 mm-hmm. as a companion prisoner to his father, who was in prison for all of his life. So he says this is a strategy, right? So how are we going to use this strategy? Intermarries the story of Jack Wolinsky, a young white architect who decides to take his skills and work on the revitalization of a depressed block in the inner city of Chicago. It's also the story of Fiona Hill, the young black woman who becomes his assistant and a partner in bringing his schemes into reality. So there's a lot of conversations on race in the book that are very profound and they draw upon many of the poems that I had developed up to that point. So what really gave birth to the book was this one poem that I had written. It's really short. It's called Journey of the White Male. I had a friend, a white friend, who's kind of whining about how hard it was to be a white male in the age of political correctness. So I think this poem was for him. It says, Journey of the White Male. A white male said to me, white male is all washed up. White male is all used up. White male blamed. His peak is past. Chickens come home to roost at last. No moral high ground of flavor out of favor unwanted and politically incorrect. I said, my friend, this is not the end. For the white male, the journey has barely begun. It's a long, dusty road from oblivion to consciousness, and the battle is not yet won. It's a slow awakening of the crocodile in the murky swamps of apathy, and the pain has barely stung. Yeah, man, it's a long, dusty ride till you climb down the sides of the pit of despair and reach out a hand to pull up the one still lingering there, till you bend your will, your pride, your skill, to removing the bars that were nailed in your name, till you step off the backs that you stand on now and weep with the secret shame. No, not until, till you bring all your sweetness your handful of trinkets, your sacred offering here, will your journey come round to sacred ground and bring your fruit to bear. So then this question came up. Oh, it was a what-if question. I started thinking about this scenario. What if a white guy sincerely wanted to do something about racial inequality what would he do? What could he do? So this story is born about this guy who's very sincere, kind of young. He previously worked in the corporate world and wasn't very satisfied there. And so now he goes to try and create this project on a string. Oh, I was just going to say that I was watching today the proceedings for Congressman John Lewis in the rotunda of the Capitol, and they played one of his speeches, and he kept talking about this concept of building the beloved community, 
that we should not give up until we have built the beloved community. And, and I think this is what Jack Bolinsky sets out to try to do. Yeah, so please read an excerpt. Okay. I'm going to read the very beginning of the book. Tuana Jackson knew you had to be desperate going into a place like this with your children trailing behind you. Desperation is what drives a body to think there is hope, even when hope is as ludicrous as a paradise in the ghetto. With her last welfare check four weeks behind her, she'd hit rock bottom. She put Ronnie down on the bottom step. Letitia, put your brother down, she told the girl beside her, in between heavy breaths. They'd all been walking since 35th Street, and Letitia had been carrying Jamal horsey-style for the last few blocks. What you gonna do, Mama? she asked. Mama, I'm thirsty, Ricarda said. It got Ronnie and Jamal whining for a drink, too. Hush up now, she had to think. Ronnie's whine became higher-pitched and drawn out. But I'm thirsty. Boy, you hush up now if you don't want me to pop you one. Ronnie's whine went into his throat. He started pulling the top of his ear. His younger brother just looked at him and followed his lead. Letitia waited silent with those ten-year-old eyes that saw too much. Looking back now, Tawana remembered thinking she'd hit rock bottom when the caseworker told her the welfare checks were going to run out. The words welfare reform had vaguely penetrated, but it hadn't seemed real to her that the government would cut you off if you had small children. She couldn't have worked anyhow with two toddlers to take care of, plus Ricky, who just started kindergarten half days. Daycare costs at least $2 an hour for each kid. It would cost more than she could earn just for the child care. She'd be working for nothing, and her kids would be cared for by strangers. But in an election year where people were spewing out terms like the undeserving poor, who cared if one more single mother dropped through the safety net and landed on her ass? It wasn't the government's problem. Some people were too poor even for welfare. In the statistics, it would just look like one more family had gotten off welfare. The whole issue didn't even make it into the national soundbite-driven news. As long as they gave her food stamps, nobody cared if she got her few dollars cash assistance. They didn't have to hear Letitia ask every day for the poster board for the science project. They didn't have to see her miss the school party because she didn't have $2 for the gift exchange. Who cared if they all had shoes? She looked up at the front of the brownstone once more, wiping the sweat off her face. So what was she expecting now, she asked herself. A miracle? What kind of a job was in there? The sign said only, jobs apply inside. She had just dragged the kids all the way down to the McDonald's on 35th Street and was given the same line she'd gotten everywhere else. There was nothing available. They had too many job applicants already. The smell of hot french fries had made her mouth water and her stomach churn. The looks on her kids' faces and their begging for them had made her throat throb and her breathing became difficult. All right, 
She was done thinking. It didn't really matter what the job was. She knew with complete clarity that she would do anything. She would even do that if she had to. She sniffed and then squared her jaw. She would. She turned around and climbed the steps. Those extra pounds were wearing heavy on her now. Peering into the open doorway, she saw a dark hall and an open door on the left. It was eerie. When she knocked tentatively on the front door and she heard someone say, In here! She took one last glance at her kids now sitting on the steps and crossed the threshold. After the bright sunlight, her eyes had a little trouble adjusting to the indoors. When they finally beheld the frame of the man standing in front of her, she felt a pang of fear. Dear Lord, what in the Jesus' name is a white man doing here? She had to muster all her determination not to turn tail and run because this couldn't be good. Hi, he said. His voice was quiet, and he had some papers in his hand, which he put down on the old table in front of him. She didn't answer, because she couldn't. Did you come about the sign, he asked. He was about six feet, or a little more. He was dressed in faded blue jeans and an equally faded t-shirt. His hair was blonde, short, but kind of crazy. He looked less than 25. She must have nodded because he motioned her to an old chair and sat himself down behind a makeshift table, which was a board put over two workhorses. When can you start work, he said. Anytime, she answered instinctively, even though she had no idea what she'd do with the kids. How do you want to be paid this week, he asked, daily or at the end? Daily? At the end of this day, she'd have enough money to buy a box of mac and cheese and some hot dogs and bread and a quarter milk if she could stretch it. By next week, the food stamps kicked in again. Because he had dangled this carrot in front of her, she finally had the courage to talk. But she wasn't looking straight at him when she asked what the job was about. I'm going to fix this place up. Oh? Tawana looked at the paint peeling from the walls, the high ceilings, and the dusty debris piled in the corners. Then she wondered why he was hiring her. She didn't know construction. She'd mostly worked in food service when she'd had a job. He spoke quietly again. I'll pay you to do painting, cleanup, light construction, whatever is needed. I'll teach you some plumbing and light carpentry down the line. Do you think you can handle it? Whatever you show me how to do, I'll do it, she said, beginning to show some enthusiasm in her words. Yet it was hard to take in. He was going to train her to be a plumber? Lord, that was unusual. Okay, you're hired, he said simply, and extended his hand for a shake. I'm Jack Walensky. What's your name? Tawana Jackson. She didn't know what surprised her more, the fact that he had given her a job just like that, or the press of the warm hand, which seemed to signify a good faith contract between her and this young man. But then reality set in, 
and she remembered the kids. What was she going to do? Did she dare leave Letitia at home with the three of them? So we've been listening to Rhea Harmson, a scientist, author, and poet, read from her novel, Intermary, which was the beginning of the novel. Very interesting. Now, you often put poems at the end of your novels. So how has your poetry influenced your stories? Well, most of them actually start with the novel. I'd say with the exception that the first one, I'd say all of them begin as a seed of a poem and then move on to become the idea starts to hatch in my head and take root. And then I start trying to write and then the book, the characters start writing themselves. And then somewhere in the middle of the process, I have some quotes from the Baha'i writings that I think are relevant to the issue and they inform the rest of the, the novel. They get in there somehow. Now, your third novel is called God Created Women. Now, what inspired you to write this novel, and what is this story about? Okay, well, there's a poem there called The Clothesline Project, which I had written after a visit to uh, Washington, D.C., where I saw the Cherry Blossom Festival and this display called the clothesline project it was a bunch of t-shirts on clotheslines and each t-shirt had a story of some abused woman or child it just really grabbed me and I had to write about it and I wrote this piece and then um, somewhere in between there we moved to Puerto Rico and when I got to Puerto Rico, I, I got invited to participate in a women's group. And it was a, a group that was half and half victims or survivors of domestic violence. And the other half were activists. A lot of the women in the group told me their stories. I took, with their permission, you know, some of their stories and wove, it, wove them into the plot here to create this story. This is a story of Joel Torres and Elena Romero, two Puerto Rican students caught in multi-generational violence who are trying to escape it, but there are a lot of secrets in families where there's abuse. They find ways to conceal it from the rest of the world. The story is, is fascinating. I think I better read a bit the next <laughs> before I give away the plot. Yeah. All right, very good, very good. Why don't you go ahead and read the next one? Okay. okay, so Maria had told Joel she didn't want to a ride to work. She wanted to walk in the cool morning air to feel the freedom of it. When she entered the side gate and made her way up to the house, she wondered why Joel was going to wear a suit today. He'd made her iron a crisp white shirt for him last night, but when she asked what was going on, he was quite secretive. He still preferred to surprise her with some things. She was about to open the kitchen door when her employer opened it and said, We don't need you today, Maria. You can go on home. But he closed the door in her face. 
Virgin Mary, what could have happened? What was going on? She walked briskly all the way home and entered the kitchen just as Joel was apparently walking out. He took one look at her and asked, What's the matter, Mommy? Do you feel sick? No, mijo, I'm all right. Where are the girls? They left already. Oh, she had to think this out. Perhaps she would call the doctor's cellular. So why are you home then? The boss said they didn't need me today. That's strange. Why? I couldn't ask. He practically closed the door in my face. Joel stood still. Who are you calling? The doctora. Hello, she said. A male voice answered. Soy Maria, sir. I was just going to see if the doctora needed my wife to sleep. Oh, she's sick today, so she's not going to work, the voice said. But then, excuse me for saying this, sir, I could come and take care of her. Don't you worry, Maria, I'll take care of my wife. Those words made her blood run cold. The phone clicked. Oh, God, please watch over her, she whispered. Joel had put his suit coat on the back of a chair. His mother's expression was one of perplexity. Now she was whispering prayers under her breath. What was going on? She turned to him and said, call Elena. He whipped out his cell phone without thinking and dialed. Hello, a male voice answered. Who's this? Now Joel was on his guard. It's Joel, he answered, because he knew Elena would have had his name in her cell. Darn it, why didn't he think to use their house phone? Joel who? Soy el hijo de Maria, he said, then added, I'm calling for my mother. She wants to talk to Elena. There was a pause. Then he said, Elena's gone to class. She forgot her cell phone. His mother quizzed him immediately. Joel frowned. All right, Ma, out with it. What's going on, huh? You got me real worried here. Maria looked guilty and secretive, and it was driving him crazy. It was something he said, she answered. He waited patiently, but only on the outside. All his muscles were tense. He said she was sick and that he'd take care of her. What's so strange about that? He frowned. That man, she paused, closing her eyes for a second, is a very bad man. He mistreats his wife something awful. She shook her head. He'd never take care of her if she were sick. Joel digested this. Her mother was incommunicado. She was incommunicado. He took a deep breath. Has he ever touched Elena? She hesitated and then said, I don't think so. You don't think so? You don't think so? Mommy, why did you keep this from me? I asked you once. Why would you keep a secret like this at all, huh? Son, it's complicated. It, I, I wasn't my, it wasn't my secret to tell. Plus, she said he didn't hit her. Joel opened his mouth. He couldn't believe what he was hearing, her rationalizations. He felt betrayed, 
Oh, yes, he did, because I saw signs of it once, and I know what that looks like. He turned towards the door. I'm going over there. No, you're not. His mother rushed to put herself between him and the door. That man has a gun in the house. For the first time in his life, he yelled at his mother, More's the reason I'm going. Son, son, be smart. Watch yourself. She ran down the steps after him. If that SOB has laid one finger on Elenita or her mother, he's the one who'd better watch out. He ripped his tie off his neck and flung it back. She caught it up and said, no, Joel, no. See, this is the reason I didn't tell you. I knew you'd go off like this. Otro abusador. I can't believe it. Another abuser, he said, as he pulled his keys out of his pocket and got in the car. Joel, Joel, thank me, ho. His mother was yelling as he took off. Oh, God, would it ever stop happening? Another woman in his life he had failed to protect. He should have known. He should have known. No, he yelled as he changed gears and floored the gas pedal. And then, suddenly, a whole different scenario occurred to him. What if the bastard had done something to her and her mother? What if he'd killed them both? And that's what he was covering up. That's when he hit the brakes so hard the car practically skidded off the road. He had to proceed with caution. For their sakes, he had to be careful. What if he alarmed the man and pushed him over the edge? Wow. Most people don't want to read about that subject, but I promise the book is juicy. It's very interesting. <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, it's an important story to tell, for sure. So we've been listening to Rhea Harmson read from her novel, God Created Women. Quite a moving excerpt. Well, Rhea Harmson, scientist, author, and poet, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rhea Harmson, a poet, novelist, as well as an agronomist. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website of BahaiPerspective.com and on the YouTube channel of Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website Baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.